You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bobin Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, and today is September 15th. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Bhavan, how are you? What have you been up to? I think you've been, uh, <laughs> I've had the most exciting news out of all yeah, of us. Like, tell Aloha. us about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been like on vacation for the past week and maybe eight days, I guess. Uh, I went to Hawaii, uh, covered three of the islands there. So for me, it's it was like a really fun week. Uh, the, the islands are really great. Covered Big Island, Maui and Oahu as the three islands. Uh, everybody who I spoke to before the trip said, uh, you don't have enough taste to justify each island or explore each island uh, fully. And I agree with that now, having gone through the trips uh, and gone to the islands. But uh, whatever I could fit into those limited number of days I had on each island were really good. So like uh, snorkeling with manta rays or uh, going, uh, driving up in a four by four on dirt roads to Mauna Kea for sunset on Big Island, uh, or just doing a few hikes on Maui and Oahu. Everything was great. Uh, I really like Hawaii. This was my first trip there and definitely won't be the last. Wow. Yeah, that is uh, pretty special. Uh, I'm pretty jealous, actually, as well. <laughs> I, I, I've been to Hawaii a few times much earlier, uh, probably four years ago by now, but I am reminiscing with all the things you're talking about. So uh, that sounds like so much fun. Um, and if you haven't been to Hawaii and you have the chance to, and you're listening to this, go, just go. I know that it's like, it's not an actual country, but you're flying so far. It feels like it, right? Am I right? Yeah, it's a different yeah. thing. Like it's not mainland USA. You won't yeah. find Burger King and McDonald's and Chipotle <laughs> at every turn. <laughs> but your milk, your gallon of milk is $4. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, I I had no Hawaiian vacation, um, but I did uh, go on a, uh, a motorcycle ride, not the 650 oh. miles that I did uh, the previous week, but this was for a charity called Ride for Kids for Pediatric Brain Tumors. Um, uh, Rever basically does this thing every year where they raise a bunch of money for Ride for Kids. And this uh, app basically allows you to just plop it in there. And this was the last day. So September 12th was the last day. I went up to Wachusett Mountain. Um, oh, so you can, nice. yeah, you can pay just like five bucks if you're a Massachusetts resident, uh, and I, you can drive all the way up. So it's just kind of like a single lane, uh, road all the way up to the top. And so that was, that was actually a lot of fun. I know like I, I, they have a, a koi pond on the top, which is surprising. I don't know if you got a chance to see that, like yeah. right off the parking lot. Uh, like I hiked what you said, uh, 
in in the spring and when we reached there that was a good surprise uh, but then we also had found like a little bakery on the bottom where we had reserved a, a cheesecake or a, i think nice. it was a carrot cake <laughs> so like we did the hike and on the way back we were just anticipating like okay how good is that uh, carrot cake going to taste now <laughs> it's all well, about carrot and the stick right <laughs> that's right exactly you gotta work for your treats <laughs> yeah yeah definitely a cool little place around here i mean we don't have many mountains in uh, central massachusetts that might be pretty much the only one i would qualify as a mountain, mm-hmm. uh, until you get out to the yeah, or you have to drive like to new hampshire to go to white mountains <laughs> yeah the berkshires are pretty nice but that's you know two and a half hours from boston yep. so it's a, quite a trip anyway so today is a really special episode. Uh, it's our first episode where we have a guest on our show. Our guest today is going to be Andy Gower. Um, so he's has a large background in solutions work. Uh, he previously worked at Sony PlayStation and IBM and now works for solutions at Pure Storage. Uh, we're excited to have him on and really talk about some of the experience he has working with the various Kubernetes data orchestration systems and really like what the difference is uh, about uh, the different orchestration systems and what data management platforms they have. I'm pretty excited. How about you? Bob? Yeah, it's great to have Andy on, right? Like, as you said, he has quite the experience with different orchestration platforms. He comes from IBM having worked on Red Hat, OpenShift and IBM CloudPack. So it would be good to get that background off of him and information around around those offerings. Yeah, I think he's got some specific uh, background with uh, sort of spectra, spectrum line of storage as well. So oh, yeah. we'll, di- we'll dig into all those uh, fun little facts in a little bit uh, when we have him join the show. Uh, before we do that, let's dive into the news, though. I know you wanted to talk about EKS Anywhere, right? Yeah, that's the only thing. Like I came back, I was catching up on my emails and the blogs that I, I subscribed to. And that was, that's the only thing that popped out to me. Uh, EKS Anywhere uh, originally announced at reInvent 2020, uh, finally is made generally available. Uh, it, it is a service that allows you to run the EKS distro uh, on VMware vSphere. So you can run it on-prem uh, and connect back to your AWS console. So this is different from the managed EKS service because this is, uh, if you look at the shared responsibility model, uh, you will be managing the infrastructure, you will be managing the lifecycle of your uh, EKS clusters, but you know for a fact that this is an open source, uh, validated, uh, supported distribution from AWS that you can use to run Kubernetes inside your own data center. It uses a few open source plugins, like it uses Cilium for the CNI plugin. Uh, it gives you a, a, a connector uh, they just call it the eks connector that uh, if you run a yaml file it connects back to your aws account so you can manage your on-prem cluster from the aws console as well and then you need i think the aws uh, anywhere support subscription with an aws enterprise support to to make sure you are you are running a supported version or you get support from aws if anything goes wrong but it allows you to run a kubernetes uh, cluster that's uh, in a connected uh, disconnected or partially connected way of uh, in your aws environments so that's cool for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, EKS Anywhere is a really cool um, uh, technology that's uh, you know coming out, and I think I saw a, a bunch of different uh, launch partners for EKS Anywhere um, that actually allow you to do a, a lot of things with stable services. So um, you know, Pure being one of them, um, I know there's a whole slew of different launch partners 
Yeah, not just from a storage perspective, right? I saw Splunk coming out with support for EKS anywhere from a monitoring perspective. Solo.io, I think, had integrations from a service mesh perspective. So obviously, whenever AWS makes anything generally available, they have a bunch of partners that they work with to make sure that whatever service is available to the customer is supported by the vendor ecosystem. Yeah, VMware, another one, I think. Uh, yeah both with the Tanzu and uh, VxRail stuff. So yeah, lots of cool news coming out of there. I, I haven't personally played with it yet. I, I really do want to though. So we should yeah, get it's a, on a list. Should collapse it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, one of the things that caught my eye uh, was uh, in the Kubernetes news was around the single pod access mode for persistent volumes. So, you know, if you are working with persistent volumes and you're creating a persistent volume claim today in Kubernetes, um, before 1.22, you had three access modes, read, write once, read only many, and read, write many, right? So read, write once is the volume can be mounted, read, write by any single node. Uh, Read only many was uh, read only by many nodes. Uh, You know, those are probably the obvious use cases uh, and read, write many uh, being another uh, great one that it can be mounted and read uh, by many nodes. And so what you'll notice is each one of those ended with node. Um, And so what this new access mode really does is take the concept of read, write once, read, write many, uh, those kind of access modes and apply them to a pod. Now, first, this is the uh, single pod access mode for um, a single pod, right? So this is basically taking the read, write once capability and saying that the new access mode is read, write once pod. Literally, that's the access mode. A very deliberate unnaming. I actually like that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, the, uh, so in this case, in your PVC, you'd say read, write once pod, and now the volume can be mounted read, write by a single pod. And this is important because if you're new to storage in uh, Kubernetes and you're mounting a read, write once volume, you may think, oh, read, write once my application can access it once. But the reality is, if you have many pods on a single node, that pod can actually uh, access um, that volume, even though it's read write once. And that's because it's at the node level. And so we've seen this where, uh, you know, read write many scenarios on a single node may work, but they're really not supposed to be used that way. Uh, I know we've come across that in certain things. So I I think this is a really important advancement towards really taking uh, the fine tunables of Kubernetes and where an application runs and really applying these uh, storage specifics to a pod application level. Yeah, even though it's in alpha, I'm really looking forward to the different kinds of applications that come forward, right? That were using read write once, but at a node level. But now because of the issues they might be facing with data integrity, uh, moving to the read write once pod, uh, which will change how uh, storage is consumed from inside a pod. Uh, one great thing I liked about it is uh, you can even migrate from a read write uh, once to a read write once pod more yeah. uh, if you have existing persistent volume. So that's really cool. Yeah, they really thought this through. I think, um, you know, the 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 one thing you mentioned is, is alpha. So you need to add the feature gates of read write once pod equal true to actually use this. Um, but yeah, you can migrate from an existing volume. Um, I think this is taking into account that Kubernetes is used everywhere. So if you want to take advantage of a new service, you're like, of course, you got to figure out how to, to just make my new volumes work this way. So yep. that, that <laughs> was really cool. I agree. 
All right. So, um, you know, there's a whole number of things that we aren't going to cover today on the news. Um, there's some other news around minimum ready seconds for staple sets and Kubernetes one two two volume populators. Uh, so, sort of a new design around that. Some really great articles around CSED pipelines and what they look like. We'll include all of these in the show notes. Uh, but or, or brevity, and we're not just covering news for 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> we're going to move into our core of the podcast, and we're going to bring Andy on the show. Awesome. Let's do it. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, Andy. Welcome to Kubernetes Bytes. It's so good to have you on here. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, I'm just basking in the glow of my Carolina Panthers being 1-0. Uh, we, we, we had a tough season last year. We, we you know... Had a, a good run with the Jets on on Sunday, so enjoying the high for now. Yeah, um, Anderson and, and Darnell had like their revenge game already. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So good, good mood to start the week, that's for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I've just been uh, I've been here at Pure almost three and a half, four months now. Um, I joined from IBM and and before that PlayStation, as you mentioned, and uh, I've been just really diving into. The solutions work. You know, what can we do here at Portworks to build out what we're doing with our solutions, with our solutions partners? And uh, it's been a really fun experience so far to get to know the technology on the Portworks side and work with a lot of different partners to, to bring that to life. Well, that's perfect, actually, for today's topic, because we're we want to talk about the different Kubernetes orchestration systems that are out there in the ecosystem, which ones you've had experience with. So, you know, let's start there. Which which systems have you used and or worked with in the past? Yeah, so I've had kind of a fascinating journey here. So I started at IBM five years ago. I, I uh, went to school, had my MBA, came out and went to work uh, in the IBM cloud unit is what it was at the time at IBM. And about three months into being there, they split off into this new hybrid cloud unit. And it was run by Arvind Krishna, who's now the CEO over there. And we focused first on how do we develop multi-cloud uh, offerings for folks to use. But it was kind of before Kubernetes had really grown. So we we're using Terraform, we we're using Chef, we we're doing a little bit with multi-cloud, but not really using the technology needed to get to the next step. And after about six months there, all of a sudden they came to us and said, hey, we want to build this thing called IBM Cloud Private. It's going to be built on this new thing called containers and Kubernetes. It's going to be our flagship offering. And we really need to dive in uh, head first into building this out and really growing it. So uh, I got to be part of that launch. I, I was the lead uh, marketer for that launch. And really, it was my first foray into what are containers? What is Kubernetes? Why is it so important to add services around generic upstream Kubernetes so that customers can start using these platforms in production and use them for mission-critical workloads? And did that for about a year. And then IBM bought Red Hat. So we went from this IBM Cloud Private product to all of a sudden $34 billion spent <laughs> to buy OpenShift and, and IBM Cloud Private uh, went to the dustbin of history and, and OpenShift became uh, the de facto platform. So I had to shift my focus from uh, IBM Cloud Private to, to all things OpenShift. And I spent 
the last two and a half years doing a mix of uh, work with IBM and OpenShift on the CloudPak side. So how do we put together uh, apps and app services that can sit on top of OpenShift around data and integration and application development uh, and give those to enterprises to help build their new applications. And then I shifted to product management uh, with IBM Storage and IBM Storage for OpenShift. So really, how do we build out the uh, offerings needed to support OpenShift uh, with our customers around the world? So, you know, I've, I've touched some of the other platforms, but my focus before joining this role is really on, on OpenShift and IBM Cloud Private. And then how, would, how do we support those on the public cloud? So OpenShift on Google, OpenShift on Microsoft, OpenShift on uh, AWS. Yeah, that, def that definitely helped you bring the multi-cloud thing to reality, right? Having the same consistent platform on all the different vendors. Yeah, and that's been what's so exciting about my shift from uh, the, my time at IBM to here at, at Portworks is, you know, there I was focused very much on, on OpenShift and there is a strong hybrid multi-cloud story on top of OpenShift, of course. Um, but at Portworks, we go beyond that. We broaden and we can support OpenShift, but we also support Tanzu. We also support AWS. We also support Azure, all, all the Kubernetes platforms. So it's been really exciting to get to dive in deeply to those platforms and start to understand um, how those platforms are helping customers in ways similar and ways different from uh, my OpenShift time. Yeah, and I think, you know, given that there's so many orchestration systems out there these days, I think OpenShift container platform is is one of the biggest even today. I mean, that is that what you've been seeing as well? Yeah, that's what I've been seeing. And, you know, it's there's really two ways that this has come to be, at least from what I've seen. There's the folks who kind of grew up with the, I want to build something on-prem in my data center. I maybe tried cloud, what we'll kind of say cloud 1.0, the first type of cloud where I put stuff out there. I heard about cloud, I was just all in on cloud and I realized it wasn't quite what had been promised to me. It was expensive, putting a mission critical app onto the public cloud was very expensive, very uh, difficult to manage, a lot of uptime. Uh, and had some regulatory issues. Maybe I, I couldn't manage the data the way I needed to. And so those folks started bringing those apps back on-prem, but they wanted the benefits of cloud. And so OpenShift really served that, as that first foray into, let's get those benefits of cloud and put them on your data center, give you the scalability, give you the uh, data management capabilities, give you the ability to uh, move that app globally where you need to, uh, but do it behind the safety of your firewall, do it behind the safety of your data center. So I think that's really where a lot of folks have started. Um, but I think we've also seen in the last couple of years, a big ramp up in public cloud uses. So folks started mm -hmm. building on the public cloud, saw that Kubernetes and, and containers were the way of the future and said, let me just use the managed Kubernetes offering that Amazon offers or Microsoft offers or Google offers because I'm already using those cloud services for the rest of my enterprise. Let me just extend those to this new Kubernetes world I'm looking at. So I think we're seeing a big yeah. rise there. Um, but I think OpenShift continues to, to really have a, a big place on-prem in the data center. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the ultimate question there is that you're getting so much extra out of the box with OpenShift Container Platform. You're getting multi-cloud. You know, it kind of leads me into the place where, you know, there are so many out there like GKE and AWS EKS, Azure AKS, VMware Tanzu, SUSE Rancher. Like, there's so many, right? In your experience, like, you know, you're getting all these things. So what benefits do organization get when uh, they choose an orchestration platform? Like, I, I know we're going to talk about data management, but there's a lot more decision-making that goes into that, right? There is. And the analogy I like to use is if you 
want to build a car, you could, of course, source all the parts yourself. You could build it yourself. You could put the windows on. You could put the tires on. You could put the chassis together. You could do that whole process yourself. Uh, but you would be responsible for making sure the tires still work and the engine still works and making sure it all fits together correctly and making sure uh, the light signals work, making sure the whole package works the way it needs to do when you actually drive the car. I think of these container orchestration platforms as an already built car. So whether it's Red Hat or VMware or Rancher or a public cloud, they're giving you the car. They're saying, hey, here's the car. It's got all the services you need to actually run in production. The turn signal works, the seats are nice, it's got the air conditioning, and we'll take care of it for you. So if a security issue comes up with the air conditioning, we'll roll out a patch. If you have an issue with the tire, we'll help you change the tire. So as an enterprise, instead of focusing on stitching together different parts of the car, you can focus on actually driving the car and making it work for your business and putting those apps into production that you need to really make containers successful in your enterprise. So I think that's the key. It's, you know, yeah. of course, if we all had 5,000 people working, we could do do it yourself, but that's just not realistic for most enterprises. <laughs> I know. And that's, that's a great analogy, right? Like uh, the one I remember is Jeff Bezos did a Y Combinator talk like 10, 12 years back where he said there was a brewery in Germany that was producing its own electricity. And then eventually that they figured out that just by producing their own electricity, they're not making the beer better. So uh, they <laughs> made sure they use a, a local provider to handle the electricity part for it. And then they are spending time on making the beer better. So that definitely like ties into like, if I'm using a managed service, either on-prem or in the public cloud, I'm not spending time in building and managing a Kubernetes uh, a platform for my developers. I'm spending more resources in building my applications or the services that I as an organization offer to my customers and increasing the value that I provide. Exactly. You know, if, if you're United Airlines, you can focus on making sure I get to my destination on time and can rebook my flight when it gets delayed instead of, you know, building the underlying platform. <laughs> and I think that's, that's what makes customers happy. It's getting those apps delivered uh, and getting those services they request. That's one of the the best sort of uh, ways to look at, you know, these different uh, orchestration systems and cloud offerings is that you get a lot for you. But I, but I know that there's sort of the concept of, you know, bringing back to the restaurant uh, or, or uh, brewery is that you can go to a restaurant uh, and they can provide all the food, but you can bring your own alcohol, right? Bring your own. I guess there's a sense of sort of a bring your own in those orchestration systems and those cloud platforms as well, where, you know, some of those built in services you may want to use. Some of them you may not want to use and you want to bring your own. So, you know, how much do you see that happening? Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of that comes up when we see this kind of on-prem versus public cloud divide. We see, I think, a lot of times if someone's using something like OpenShift or Tanzu or Rancher, they are a little more advanced and a little more hands-on and wanting to build their own data services or bring their own data services uh, into the equation. They're not looking for someone else to provide them. Whereas if you're using something like Amazon or Google or Microsoft, you're looking to leverage what they've already done. And, and Amazon said, hey, we've become the best in doing this specific thing. And an enterprise says, great, I want to take advantage of that. And I think that's really uh, the question most enterprises have to ask. And it, it really depends on what are your resources? What are your, your focus areas? What are your constraints? If you've got a lot of regulatory issues, if you've got a lot of compliance things you need to, to take care of, Maybe you need to have that extra control where you own mm -hmm. the data services, you own the security apparatus, you own uh, some of those pieces. But maybe it's an app that's just a customer-facing web app that doesn't really have those same requirements. So some of those data services, some of those add-ons that uh, something like Amazon or Microsoft offers uh, are more than sufficient for your needs. So I think it varies 
uh, depending on what you're doing and kind of what what those requirements are. Yeah, it's all about finding the right balance. Like for some applications that I am running, uh, the inbuilt services might be uh, good for the job that they do. But then for additional applications that need those specialized uh, data services, uh, again, this is a data management podcast. So if, if you need that high level, high availability replication encryption at the storage level, um, not all the platforms will have those services built into the storage layer. So uh, I guess as an organization or even as an administrator, you have to find that right balance on uh, what can I consider as good enough or, and what do I need to invest more money on and build those or, or get those additional data services from other, some other vendor. For sure. And it, I, I think it also depends on what your your environment looks like. Is it homogeneous? Is it, is it heterogeneous? If you're a big multinational corporation, Sure, there might be a place where OpenShift and, and OCS is great, but you might have five other arms of the company that are using public clouds, that are using Tanzu, that are using Rancher. So the bigger question is, how do I make all of that work together? And using something that is uh, shipping with just one of those platforms like OCS or, or you know something with Rancher or whatever it is might not work. You might need a broader solution, something like uh, Portworks or, or someone else who can go across those different distributions because you want that consistency, you want that simplicity uh, across the environment. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know, Bob, and you mentioned this is data management <laughs> podcast, but we we obviously know that there's other, you know, other consumables that you may use like CICD pipelines or monitoring or, you know, those kind of things uh, that come as well. And I, and I think it is right. You know, it's a right balance of what size are you? How, what, how many services do you use? How many clouds do you use, right? It may kind of dictate your direction of where you need those abstractions or where you need more. I think this is a, a good moment to kind of move towards figuring out uh, what exactly of those built-in services are uh, sort of in the data management realm, uh, in the cloud native storage realm. What can you tell us about these different um, you know, platforms that you've had experience with, the, you know, what they offer in terms of data management, whether it's block, file, object, whether it's a bring your own cloud native storage provider, yeah, great question. And I, I think, again, as with much in the space, it varies. So I think the, the big kind of first question with all these platforms is, what is the model for storage and data management? Are they taking a CSI approach or are they taking a container native storage approach? I think what we see with a lot of the traditional vendors, a lot of the folks who have been uh, maybe around doing uh, virtual machines is they've introduced a CSI spec that says, hey, my storage array will work with your container platform. And that might be okay for one or two deployments. That might be okay if you're testing a little bit of uh, Kubernetes in, in one small part of your enterprise. Um, but the challenge you run into with that traditional CSI approach is you need a different CSI uh, driver for each of those arrays, and they all have different capabilities. You might have one that can start getting into backup and restore, and you might have another that hasn't picked that spec up uh, in their CSI driver. And so that approach doesn't really translate well if you want to grow into a true container native environment. So, you know, the other side of the spectrum is container native storage. It's this idea of let's put the storage inside uh, the Kubernetes control plane. Let's have the storage extend the automation of Kubernetes or, or excuse me, extend the automation of Kubernetes down to the storage and data management layer. And I think that is where we start to see additional services that uh, different vendors offer. It might be backup and restore. It might be DR. Uh, it might be the ability to, um, you know, guarantee high availability or, or deliver high availability. Um, and I think what we see is a little bit of that that ships with some of some of the folks like OpenShift Container Storage, you start to see a little bit of that, um, but we don't see that broadly 
uh, from many vendors, that true container native storage that sits in the control plane and offers a breadth of storage services or a breadth of data management services. Bob and I, I think, did a, a, an episode on sort of what is cloud native storage and, and sort of along the lines of like, is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> uh, you know, we had the conversation around, you know, is cloud storage cloud native storage? Meaning that like if you are running an AWS and you want to use EBS, you would kind of view this as cloud first storage. But does it really play well with Kubernetes? And I like your definition of it there where it's you're saying, you know, that cloud native storage needs to run in the Kubernetes control plane. It, it does. And, and, you know, the other question is back to our, our last point, the hybrid cloud, the multi-cloud, mm-hmm. what does your environment look like? That specific data service like EBS might be great if your entire enterprise is AWS, but what if you decide tomorrow you want to move to Azure or your company gets acquired and, and that company is using Google? You know, we, we had a, a customer here that uh, they were looking for, how do I support a true hybrid multi-cloud model? Because I am on a specific public cloud vendor, but we acquire companies all the time. And when we acquire that company, they're using different public cloud. So I need a storage and data management approach that makes sure that we work across those clouds, that we're not spending 6, 12, 18 months re-architecting the acquired company's environment uh, just to get them online. So I think you know, those, those individual cloud and, and storage management offerings might work, but you have to think broad. You have to think, how am I actually uh, going to make this work across my entire environment. Yeah, so like I guess uh, that this is a good point to ask, right? Like, what data management services, like in different distributions, are considered cloud native? Like, what do you mean, or what are? Can you give us some examples of of cloud native storage? Yeah, for for sure. So you know, I think the the big kind of services that we're looking for is: can I do backup and restore? Can I take snapshots? Am I taking a snapshot that is? a cloud-native snapshot that includes the Kubernetes objects, that includes the app definition, that includes the actual data? Uh, or am I just using a, a storage that's taking a snapshot of the volume and it's taking a, a snapshot of the whole volume? So maybe it's way bigger than I need or I can't get down to that granular level of a specific container. So that's, that's one big one. Uh, disaster recovery is another big one. So can my storage quickly and easily fail over again all of that information, the app, the Kubernetes configuration, uh, the app configuration, can, or the Kubernetes objects, the app configuration from one site to another site so I can have a zero RPO or a very low RPO. Uh, or am I using storage services that don't really speak the language so it fails over too much and it takes half an hour to restore instead of five minutes to restore? Um, I think those are two big ones. The other big one is security. So is the security apparatus, is it set up to support Kubernetes and app aware or namespace aware uh, access? Is it letting me say, hey, this namespace, uh, only, only I can access. You know, Ryan and Bob, and I don't want you accessing this. Mm-hmm. Or am I going to be required to say this entire cloud volume uh, is, is accessible or not? So those namespace container granular features, those are, I think, critically important when we think about the data services. Is my service able to do that? Or am I using a service that doesn't speak Kubernetes, doesn't speak namespace, doesn't speak Uh, container granular for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call click or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done 
Awesome. Like, like yeah. deployed on Kubernetes, managed through Kubernetes, and then I guess you listed out all the things, right? Data protection, disaster recovery, and security, like three key aspects that you should look for in a storage system. And most preferably, if you get everything from the same stack, like you can still build out solutions where you, let's let's go back to the VMware example, right? You can run vSAN, uh, you get block storage of it, run vSAN file services, get file services, and then maybe use Valero and a different product uh, for backup and disaster recovery. But then, uh, for example, like Portworks, uh, you get all of those things from one single platform. So as an administrator, how much overhead uh, do you want? Uh, how much? How many things do you want to manage on your own and have your team manage? So again, it's going back, like it's all about finding that right balance. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bob. And, and, and you know, I, I think there's a lot of different orchestration systems that, you know, come with some of these things built in, right? We talked about SUSE Rancher, they have Longhorn, OpenShift Container Storage mm-hmm. has OCS. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, sort of the cloud versions of, you know, EBS and EKS, which is not necessarily cloud native storage, but it can use CSI. So those are some built in methods. And then there's sort of the the bring your own, which is you know, the storage OSs of the world, which aren't tied to a specific cloud mm-hmm. or port works, which aren't tied to a specific cloud that can give you that abstraction across a lot of uh, different uh, cloud platforms and Kubernetes platforms. Yeah, and I, and I think it really comes down to what am I trying to achieve, right? Is Kubernetes key to my enterprise being successful? And if it is, what does a successful environment look like? Am I locking myself into one vendor? And if that's the case, maybe you just need what that vendor offers and, and kind of double click and say OCS and OpenShift or uh, Rancher and Longhorn or AWS and, and EBS is sufficient. But uh, if you're really building a true uh, hybrid cloud, a true uh, Kubernetes architecture, you have to think about the future and you have to think about how am I going to move these apps in the future and what do I want to do with these apps as they continue to grow and scale? I think that I think those are some wise words to maybe end end our <laughs> podcast with you, right? That's a great send off. Um, I think you know I've I've learned a lot here. There's a lot of insights you've you've brought to the podcast, and I think a lot of people will uh, get a greater understanding of like why they'd use a, a container orchestration system and Kubernetes that's hosted, or or what it means to your organization and how big your organization is, and when to choose um, you know built-in services and not. So. You know, it's been a pleasure, Andy. Uh, thank you for joining us here on, on Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for being the first host, right? <laughs> yeah. Th- thanks for having me. Hopefully we'll do this again. And, and hopefully I'll still be in a, a rosy mood and our Panthers will still be <laughs> on a positive trend. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Don't they play the Saints or the Bucks next week? They do. So that, it's a good thing you caught me before that as opposed to after that. <laughs> I think I'm supposed to say, you know, go Bucks because I'm from Boston, but, uh, you know, oh, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now that Brady's there um, anyway. Uh, well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure and I, I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. Likewise, Andy. Awesome. That was great having Andy on. You know, what did you think, Bob? And what are your takeaways from that conversation? I, I'm really glad. Like, uh, we did a great job uh, having our first guest on. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just happy that everything worked out well without any glitches and the need for re-recording things over and over again. So this was great. Uh, but going back to the topic, right? Uh, one of the key, ta- like, I have a couple of takeaways, but then uh, overall theme was uh, the value that any solution is providing you as an organization 
is basically the sum of all the problems that it solves for you, right? So uh, when it comes to cloud native storage, it's all about that shared responsibility model. Uh, how do you? How much do you want to take on as an administrative team or as an organization? How much do you want to rely on the vendor uh, for? Uh, what comes out of the box with the orchestration platform that you choose? Some of the services might be built in, but are they good enough for the applications that you want to run? Uh, like, do you need those additional data services like backup and disaster recovery? If you are thinking about running applications in production, you definitely need those. Uh, you need to have a DR plan, RPO zero, sync DR, uh, RPO of like 15 minutes, async DR. You need solution and answers for that. So uh, you have to find the balance between what's, what comes out of the box and what additional services you need to get from a different vendor. So the finding that difference between Cloud native storage and just cloud storage or, or traditional storage that's presented using CSI is really important. Anything you want to add, Ryan? Yeah, and I think the one thing I'll add is that, you know, like we talked about during the episode, is that a lot of these uh, platforms do come with some cloud native storage options, right? You have to definitely dig in and use these tools, right? Get familiar with what they provide, what they can do for you. Um, you know, there are a, a, there is a lot of moving parts in today's cloud native storage space. Like we try to cover a lot of what's going on on this podcast, um, but really you have to you have to dig in. You know, try. Try all of these different systems um, and and really learn what's going to work for your application and specifically to the conversation today, your organization, right? Because uh, a built-in service may not work if you're using multiple um, you know, different cloud providers or on-prem and, and at the same time. So definitely some great uh, words of wisdom from Andy there. I enjoyed yeah, that. Yeah, like in 30 minutes, we can only scratch the surface, as you said, right? <laughs> like if you want to run any of these in production or even like your QA environments, you need, you need to do the work and figure things out on your own and let a vendor help you if you need. So uh, that comes to the end of the episode. And, you know, I will encourage anyone listening to send a message on Anchor or review us on uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And um, next week, we have a really cool episode covering database as a service. So taking uh, these conversations that we've had so far to the next level, really how to run your data services on Kubernetes and what different options you have when it comes to database as a service or how hard it is to run it yourself if you don't want to do database as a service. And I think we are pronouns, right? So like we, we are getting our second <laughs> guest on. <laughs> yeah, we'll have uh, Umer on uh, next week. Um, so uh, Umer Mufti, he came from uh, DreamWorks, uh, now actually is part of the Pure family. Uh, and he'll have a lot of great and interesting things to say of his experience using Database as a Service. I'm really excited for the next one. Same here, Bavin. All right. Well, until next time, everyone, take care. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. 